Welcome to Songs and Stories, the not-for-musicians-only music podcast. Hey there, welcome once again to Songs and Stories. I'm Michael Gaither, and this is Songs and Stories, episode number 64. Time for a couple of kitchen table talk interviews here on Songs and Stories. The next couple of episodes will be with uh, singer-songwriter Dana Hubbard, who I met uh, last fall, September, I believe, at the American River Music Festival up in Coloma, California. Kind of like outside of Sacramento towards Tahoe for about an hour up in the mountains. Very pretty festival, in fact. I'm booked there this year. And I'll let you know about that a little later in this episode. But uh, but I met Dana, and um, kind of through... Actually, I met Dana through Wesley Robertson at KVMR. Wesley said, hey, Michael, you should have Dana on your podcast. So I did. Took him up on it. So, Wesley, if you're listening, there you go. I do listen to what you tell me. So uh, Dana and I hung out. We played a little bit. In fact, if you go back to episode number 47 of Songs and Stories called The Late Night Song Circle, it was me, Dana, Greg Kitchell, uh, Strings, and uh, Rob Hastings and Tommy Sellers there kind of playing mandolin, all kind of hanging around a a lantern and uh, trading songs. And that was fun. That was episode number 47, which seems like a long time ago. But I kept in touch with Dana, and he drove down here to Watsonville. He's Berkeley-based. And um, we hung out and did kind of like the two-part kitchen table talk. And uh, interesting thing about Dana, in fact, well, this this podcast series in general, what I like doing is I think everybody has a story, and I think it's fun to kind of sit around and chat and kind of see where the story comes out. And in Dana's case, I think you might find this interesting because it was a, an area of music that I didn't know a little bit about because I'm kind of a late bloomer. But Dana played in blues bands in the 80s and 90s and really made quite a good living at it doing you know, playing in barrier bars, a lot of corporate gigs, where which musicians know is where a lot of the real money is when you can get these kind of shows. But um, he explains in this interview coming up how that kind of died out for a lot of reasons, and that's really really what drove him to be a solo singer songwriter. So it was really, in his case, art as much as economics, and I thought it was kind of interesting. Another kind of cool point was um. Dana, Dana basically lives and travels in a small RV, and if if you know me, my friends know this, that uh, my wife's wanted an RV for years, and I didn't want a big, giant machine that burned that much fuel, and then I realized that, uh, I learned that Dana's little RV actually gets better gas mileage than our truck and campers, so I've kind of rescinded my <laughs> my prejudice against RVs, and uh, what we're going to do here is you're going to hear this conversation after Dana pulled up in his RV, and I said, okay, i got to check this out. So we're going to talk about the RV, and then we'll kind of segue into how he actually uses it to kind of travel around and uh, the kind of pros and the cons, because a lot of performers actually travel this way, and um, some say it's cheaper, some say it's easier. We're going to talk about that, which is kind of an interesting sort of side topic. Then we'll talk about the music and the, the club scene and how he's a solo performer, um, and we'll go into that in part two, which will be episode 65 We'll hear Dana play a couple of things. So I think I'm going to break form here, and um, let me see. I'm going, I'm going to not play any sound clips off his off his CDs because the interview is so long. So stick with that, and then we'll hear him play in part two. So uh, here's Dana Hubbard sitting around my kitchen table. 
So I wanted to talk talk to you about your music, but I just saw your rig. <laughs> talk about your rig, and then we'll go on to the music. Okay, my rig. And then retell the sister yeah. story. Yeah, interrupt. Well, my rig is a, it's a 2006 Sprinter van, uh, you know, done with the RV conversion. So it's it's a it's essentially a small RV that you can stand up in, and it's not like the old van again thing where you got to stoop all the time or, or pop and, the top. No, yeah, yeah, you don't have to pop the top. And, um, I'm impressed. I want one. <laughs> the wife's going to see it. I'm going to hear okay, about I'll, it, but I'll, I want one too. I'll go shopping with you guys. I'll help you. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, yeah, it's just wonderful for touring because yeah. it's small, It's but it's big enough to be comfortable. Yeah. For two people if you're for traveling For two people, too. yeah. And um, it says you can sleep for it, but I wouldn't want to try that myself. Yeah. You know, you'd be... Tanks aren't that big, you know. You'd be. It's having, a little narrow for four people. But, it is. Yeah. yeah in fact, um, two people can't pass each other. Right. You got to kind of like have, have traffic signals or yeah. something going on. But uh, and then one person in there, I call people. I tell people it's like my rolling cabin essentially because yeah. like, it is like a cabin. It's like everything's in reach, you know. Yeah. And you've got a uh, full shower, a full bath. Yeah. It's not too. It's compact but not crowded. And then right. I mean, the typical things, you've got a TV, you've got the sink, you've got room up front, you've got mm-hmm. room to... What I liked is you, you pulled your guitar out of an overhead storage, so it wasn't obviously... A, there wasn't like a guitar sitting in the back seat. It was kind no. of hidden away. Absolutely. And as, you know, in, implicit in your statement is that you got to be careful of that stuff. You know? right, right. You start showing that there's a lot of stuff in there, and, and then you've got a problem. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I actually recorded half of that my last CD, the the groundskeeper CD, in the van, on really? the road. Yeah, I had a little uh, digital recorder with me, uh-huh. and um, would do put you know, if I had some downtime, you know, I'd find a nice beach or something, hang out, set up the recording gear, and so you could make it a rolling studio if you really wanted to fit it out that way. Too. Absolutely, and um, it was funny because I um, opened for David Wilcox uh-huh. in the spring, and we were yakking in the dressing room. And he he's done the same thing in a an airstream. He pulled an airstream around for a whole tour, and he um, I don't know if he recorded his whole CD in yeah. there, but he recorded some of it. Mm-hmm. And like he was saying, there's a lot of things going for that type of vehicle for recording because it's it doesn't have a lot of square surfaces mm-hmm. and things like that. Oh right. A lot of the surfaces are very soft, mm-hmm. you know, because the you know the roof is mushy and the the sides are cloth and some kind of cloth, so they actually lend themselves to it really well. And then, of course, idea. the whole the whole romantic idea of you it's know, an airstream. Yeah. yeah, his was an airstream, and yeah. mine's a Sprinter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, have you costed out the difference between traveling in that versus hotels? And yes, I did that before I went to the RV. Did all your research? Well, yeah. What what I found was before I found this RV was that you you couldn't. Cost beat it cost wise. It was still cheaper to do the airline rental car mm-hmm. hotel room for the most part. Um, it, but I hated that because I was spending most of my time going between the hotel the room and the venue. The time you save must be. Uh, with this, you just pull up, you know, to the venue and go. I'm here, you know. Can I borrow some electricity, you know, or something, yeah. and and hang out and wait, wait for, you know, what a do your sound check, whatever. Right, it's right. wonderful. And like I was saying to you a few minutes ago, I I I was an audience at Sisters Folk Festival two years ago, and I mm-hmm. pulled into town. I went up and I asked the the people like um, at the at the information tent where you could park, and they kind of said, "Well, 
pretty much anywhere you want. If mm-hmm. people don't want you to park in front of their house, they've put out orange cones. And I was just thr- so amazed because a lot of festivals actually either they have to or they do make money off the parking. Mm-hmm. And Sisters didn't do that. Sisters is one of my favorite folk festivals. So I have far. to go. I've, I've talked about it on this podcast with a bunch of different people, and I have to go next year. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, well I think the reason I was going to go... I usually go to the Fall Strawberry Festival. And this year I didn't because I was going to go to Sisters, which is a week after that. Right. And like I was talking outside, I did my, my run up to Reading and Coos Bay uh-huh. this year when field was kind of like peaked. Uh-huh. And after driving that far, I just didn't feel like a long road trip again. Oh, I don't blame you. You know, I just, yeah. which is why I ended up at the American River Music Festival, which is how we met. So all it right. all worked out. Well, nothing, I'm glad for nothing that. Nothing happens by accident. <laughs> yeah. um, I had a question. I had a question. Well, why are you thinking of your question? Well, what I was going to say there was, they said parking. I ended mm-hmm. up literally because of the RV. I was parked. I was parked at Biscuit Throw from the main stage tent and stayed there the whole weekend. Wow! Just running back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it just made it so yeah. cool. Yeah. And the RV thing. That's what I was going to say. I interviewed. Um, there was a duo from Southern Washington called Gypsy Soul, Celeste Swan and Robert and Morgan. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. And they were in town. I think I think when I talked to him it was December of last year actually, and um, you know when they got they got they were staying at this this hotel um, up in the up on Deeple Hill in Capitola, and I got there before they did because they did a radio a radio appearance and they came and when they arrived, Roman was going up and down the stairs to the car getting their guitars and because you can't leave it in your car and there and last I talked to them they were shopping for a motorhome they were because. Of the time, they, every time they go to a different venue, they have to unload their car. And when I went, when I played in Reading last year, I, I stayed at my friend Lou's house, and they put us up, him and his wife Suzanne. But I didn't want to leave. And for that for that run, I had to take a PA. Oh my god! So I had like a small subset of my sound gear and my guitars, and I had to like cart it all in the house. <laughs> so I wasn't going to leave it outside, especially in a camper, which isn't very secure. Yeah. So it's that thing with the RV. It's it's pretty tight, and you can you can you can put things away. You've mm-hmm. got a real lock on the door. You can park in a good spot. Yep. You know, and a lot of times you really haven't wandered very far from it. Right. Right. You know, you can still kind of keep an eye on it if, yeah. if that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. So now let's go back a while. So, um, you started out playing in bands when you were doing music full time, or you've yeah. always been a, a musician full time. I've always been a musician full time. Um, I think, as I mentioned to you, I grew up in Monterey. Right. Right. Ended up when I was in high school working on a ranch there. And then uh, that was the only real job I ever had. Yeah. Uh, progressed from that to moving to the San Francisco Bay Area and basically started out, you know, street singing and stuff. And then mm-hmm. worked my way up. And r- the guy at the ranch was really nice. Once he, you know, got it through his head that I was really going to go, he mm-hmm. said, "Well, when you need work, let me know. Come down." Well, at the time, I did not know how valuable that was going to be. Mm. But so that was a real resource. Yeah, because when I was first doing this, the street scene in the city and stuff, you, of course you're not making that much money, and um, so I would go down and work ten days, two weeks at the ranch. Mm-hmm. That would get me a little cash, and I'd go back up, and then finally uh, form some bands with a partner mm-hmm. and started making enough money to live off of, yeah. and then eventually went on my own and. Um, in a more blues direction and did the blues trio thing. And that's when I really started, you know, when I would say I was making my living from playing music. Mm-hmm. About, year, about what year was that? Uh, that was in the, um, like, mid-'80s okay. into the late-'90s. You could actually really make a good living at that point, you know. That was the club and the bar scene? Club and the bar scene. It was um, 
was really happening up yeah. there. And um, was it mostly and, blues bands and covers, a mix of your own? Or it was a, um, a lot of. Oh, my band. Yeah, my band was um, blues mm-hmm. and um, and then my songs. Okay, and it was it was really great because uh, some I don't know why. I suppose if I thought about it for a while, I'd come up with a theory, but. Um, I was able to mix in my stuff with the blues, and, and it, it worked really well. And especially, you know, you, you get to a point where it's automatic to kind of be thinking about dancing or dancers. Mm-hmm. So your 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 meters and your rhythms are usually conducive. It worked to in that. those environments. Yeah. So if you can, you know, some real esoteric weird song is not going to work, right. but you know, you can get away with a lot. Yeah. You know. So that yeah, that's what I did for quite a while, and then. Um, I think as I alluded to you when we talked earlier, I, at one point I just got, I had to get out of the club scene. Mm-hmm. It was just too much. Well, you were doing it for several years. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, more than 10 years. This is before you had the RV, too. Yeah. Right? Real, so you, yeah. Were, you were staying on couches <laughs> and probably doing that scene for a well, while. Well, no, actually the truth is I was doing it all in the Bay Area. Oh, good for you. So, I mean... and There was enough work back then. There was enough work. Well stated. That was really what it's about, which is very different today. It's changed, hasn't it? Absolutely. The club scene is not what it was. But back in the... Especially in the mid-80s to mid to the mid-90s, mm-hmm. there was a lot of clubs. Um, you had the, the whole dot-com thing was going nuts. Oh, okay. You right. could do a ton of casual There was money parties. to be spent on things like that. Oh, yeah. Private parties, corporate parties. Absolutely. And so between the clubs and the corporate parties, um, I was making a good living and paying my band really good. good. And um, I mean, the, the best joke I have is that I actually had an IRA account, yeah. which that's no longer there. <laughs> <laughs> I robbed it already. <laughs> but I mean, that's how, you know, yeah, that's how well you could do. And then it totally changed. It got tougher and tougher. Um, is that because of the dot-com bust or just a lot of things? It was a lot of things, frankly. Um, uh, it was because of a co- kind of a combination, and I'm not going to use that pat phrase that everyone uses these days, but basically a lot of things happened at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, AIDS, everyone became very conscious of AIDS. Which the, killed the club scene a little bit. Or killed the club scene a little bit. Then you had the drinking laws, which I support mm-hmm. the drinking laws, mm-hmm. but they, they, they definitely had an impact on the club scene. Um, like a lot of people say cigarette, the whole cigarette, anti-cigarette smoking had, that did not. Mm-hmm. But I watched the the um, the, the more adamant um, anger around drunk driving and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That did eventually have an impact on the mm-hmm. club scenes. And um, and then just all that consciousness, then the, the dot-com crash. I mean, just a whole bunch of stuff happened, mm-hmm. you know. And, and we were still making, because by then we were, pretty well established right um by the late 90s we were still making pretty good money mm-hmm. and stuff especially in the casual scene because you mm-hmm. still had the dot-com thing mm-hmm. happening rolling along pretty big time yeah. but i'm not sure what year the the dot-com crash hit but that all went you know and then 9-11 hit you know and yeah, like we were getting a lot of work from uh um wedding uh activity mm-hmm. up in the napa valley and stuff mm-hmm. and after 9-11 that whole thing crashed because people mm-hmm. were traveling so it was like this series of, you know... Lots of things. Yeah. Every time, you know, it struggled back to its, you know, its knees, it got knocked down. You know what's interesting about that whole list of things that affected the music scene at that particular time? None of it was music taste related, apparent from, from that list of, of factors. Yep. Yeah. It wasn't like people 
wanted to stop listening to club music or blues music. It's just a bunch of other outside factors influenced the places you played. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. As, as well as a bunch of outside factors influenced why there was the club scene in the city at that yeah. point. And I don't know if you've ever been to Austin, but mm-hmm. Austin is the only other scene I've ever seen that eclipsed the Bay Area mm-hmm. at, at that point. Mm-hmm. I, I happened on Austin on 6th Street um, on a Thursday ah, night, and I was just yeah. walking around with my jaw on the ground yeah. like, holy cow, yeah. look at this, you know. That was pretty impressive. So I was expecting a good like VH1 behind the music story. We were great, and then we all went on drugs. Then we got great again. Right. We're back in rehab. No, it's just like no. cigarettes and drinking and the dot-com buzz right. and 9-11 and right. all these normal you know, outside influences. Yeah, and I bet like you and a bunch of other musicians that are thinking about these things seriously, I mean, I'm really curious what uh, this whole economic crisis is going to do. I'm wondering. In the next... Because they, they say, like, the Depression didn't really hit until two years after the 29 crash. Right. And that makes a lot of sense because it takes a while for those um, those traumatic blows to work their way down into the economy right. and slow everything right. down. So I'm really – I'm very concerned about the next couple of years because uh, um, basically I, I have to back up now. So I got out of the club scene. Mm-hmm. As I was kind of looking for other things to do and to, that would allow me to get out of the club scene, I was also um, opening myself up to acoustic solo performance. Okay. So that was coming along. But I also was, uh, I bought a few things on eBay. And I discovered that if I wanted to pay attention, I could actually buy and sell recording equipment on eBay because mm-hmm. people would offload packages. Mm-hmm. And I just, from just my own dabbling in recording, knew enough about it. To know what the values were, and so mm-hmm. for a couple of years, um, my brother and I actually bought and sold recording equipment on eBay. So that's how I was able to let go of the club scene, mm-hmm. you know, and still support myself financially. And and then that there, there's an irony there because after the dot com bust, you, you use the internet to kind of like <laughs> keep the money coming along. I like Absolutely, that. and and you know there like was that, that whole dynamic after the dot com crash. A lot of businesses crashed. Right. That didn't have good sound business mm-hmm. practices, but one of the big ones that survived was eBay. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you could. There was a while there you could actually make money on eBay. Right. Now I have a hunch that's still true. I haven't paid attention for the last couple of years, um, but I also hear that eBay is laying off people now too. So I don't wow. know. Yeah, did you hear that? No, I didn't. Yeah, and that's huge because eBay has been. Kind of touted as this really model employer mm-hmm. of people, you know. It's interesting. This is kind of a tangent, but my my day job is a is a it's a corporate job over the hill with a big company. I won't say the name, but <laughs> um, you know, we were told Friday that they they got rid of a couple of people in my division, but they're not moving the jobs to India. But they have recs now for those jobs in India, and there's a big article in today's Mercury about. You know, they're not moving the jobs to India, but they're developing, you know, so it's kind of scary what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is, it, is the implication there that it's almost like by saying they're not moving them to India raises the, the actual possibility that they might eventually? Well, they're already doing it. Which oh. is, they're, already de- they're already developing it over there. But, wow. uh, I'm, I'm not going to say the employers do No, I know, I know. Man, I know. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, there's sort of a double, it's like, what are you really telling us? Right. Yeah. Right. This part I might edit. I'll see how I feel when I play. <laughs> but um, yeah, so economics dictate a lot of things. 
what I was talking about when we were talking about your your RV out front. I was out and I found out the incredible gas mileage you get uh-huh. with an RV, which is mid twenties typically on the highway. Yeah, mid twenties I would say is fair on the highway. I've talked to a lot of people doing this interview series that I've been able to like you know hang out with and visit and learn from that that economics and fuel prices are really hitting a lot of things besides just. The fact that people can't afford to travel as much. I mean, musicians can't afford to travel as much. And because people are spending more of their disposable income on gas and food, people have less disposable income to, you know, disposable, quote unquote, to go out to shows and, and buy CDs and support the people that are on the road paying the high fuel prices to go out and entertain. So it's affecting a lot of things. I would second every yeah. statement you made there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I've noticed like uh, CD sales are down mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. Um, now that could be also because a lot of people are downloading stuff off iTunes, which mm-hmm. is fine. I love right. that. That's legit. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but in general, you're absolutely right. People don't don't have the discretionary income. Um, the the fuel prices, especially when diesel was over five bucks, was killing me. And and that's a real um, conflict for me because I've always actually supported higher fuel prices as long as, of course, the the money went to the right places. Mm -hmm. But I felt that that petrol fuels, you know, oil was subsidized and by a lot of politics. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, when you talk about subsidizing alternative source of energy. Oh, can't do that, you know? And and if you actually figured the real costs, then Mm -hmm. they're not that different. And so when, when, when you hear Dana screaming because the fuel is up, I admit, you know, I raise my hand and say guilty as charged. I'm being very hypocritical, but but it was hurting me. It was hurting me. It was, um, uh, it made, it made it extremely difficult to move around. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. yeah. Well, plus you're, you're in a position where you've chose to make a living by traveling. So it's... Right. It, there's a little justification there, I would, I would say. Well, I would hope. And, you know, I was... I, I didn't even consider the RV thing until... Mm-hmm. I think this is answering a question you asked earlier before we were on. Um, I could never beat it cost-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, always traveling by RV was more expensive mm-hmm. until I found this one that got mileage up into the mid twenties. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it was competitive. I won't say it was better, but at least it was competitive. Right. And so I got pretty excited, and because that's how I had always wanted to do it. Yeah. I don't enjoy the whole airline, you know, hotel room thing. Right. And I've always kind of had a romantic fantasy of uh you know the gypsy making your living on the road which is what you're doing absolutely and and so finally i could at least compete and so that that um but then of course fuel went up right and that that disappeared but it's coming back down again i you know i'm real conflicted about the whole thing i'm you know i'm like I was telling you earlier, I wish they'd have made this a hybrid because yeah. you know, they, they actually had the technology. Mm-hmm. And it might happen again. Yeah. I think we'll need to. That's a good point. Um, going back a little bit, so you when you started playing solo, was it economics that drove that or just to, uh, just wanted to try something different because the club scene was kind of going away? Uh, you know, it was neither Cause economics. Because you, you'd always kind of played in bands once, once you passed your busking period. So. Right. And um, it was neither economics nor the club scene that drove mm-hmm. me into the solo world. It was that in recording my first CD, Tummy Lust, mm-hmm. um, 
I actually started adding some acoustic guitar parts mm. for for just you know kind of a color. Yeah, color. And I got really intrigued with the acoustic guitar again. And and for me personally, um, it, the acoustic guitar is a much bigger challenge than the electric guitar. Mm. And so I got real intrigued with it. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then also as as the club scene did go down, it became harder and harder to, to hold bands together mm. and hold good musicians. Right. And so. Um, I, here's how I, here's how I say it. Um, I don't miss the club scene at all. I really miss the players. I really mm-hmm. miss playing with the players because they were they are great people mm-hmm. and great players. And so that part I really miss. However, I love doing the solo thing. I I'm a freak for solo guitar, solo uh, fingerpick guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone you know from John Fahey, who is kind of touted as the father of that genre. Yeah. Um, on, you know, t- all the way through to, to all the current people that are doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I love it. And so, even though I miss the band scene, um, and I hope to do more of that in the future as, as I, I meet players um, at the festivals. I've been doing a lot of festivals last yeah. year, and you meet players. And so, as, as you cross paths, you get the opportunity to play with players. It's fun. Yeah, it's really fun, like what we're doing. Well, it's like, I, I think it's confirmed now, July 18th. Um, is it confirmed? I think so. Well, we, we um, a couple of podcasts back. I think I think I'll have the, the song circle on it before we do this. But mm-hmm. um, for people listening, we Dane and I met at the American River Music Festival know, a few weeks ago, and there's a fellow named Kevin O'Dell who runs a house concert series up in Newcastle. And we're talking about doing a show with me, Dana, and our friend Greg Kitchell this summer, doing like a songwriter in the round thing. So you you meet people, and sometimes you find these gigs, and then yeah. You, and the great thing is you can find people that you can work with in other towns, too. So Absolutely. I've got a buddy up in Reading who I can gig with. And then when I, you know, when I can afford to take the band somewhere. It's, so it's, it's nice to mix it up. Yeah, It's absolutely. really fun. Yeah. The festivals are, for me, a, a really new thing. That's really mm-hmm. exciting. Um, I've been doing them. Well, in 2005 was my first songwriter finalist festival. I, did, I went to Florida. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and you drove or you flew? No, I flew. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a long answer. Yeah, right? that was. <laughs> um, and and then uh, in 2007, I got in Tucson for the first time, and mm-hmm. then I got in Tucson again this year, 2008. Oh, good. And I got into Founders in Utah, and so um, the festival thing is just a wonderful new toy for me personally, mm. you know, and I'm loving them. And then to have gotten into American River as a as a performer was really fun. That's and, a, I was very impressed with that festival. Yeah, yeah. it was really good, yeah. really good festival. Um, some of the some of the headliners who I'd never heard of before, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised, you know, um, with how good they were. Yeah. And um, and then I went up uh, that week after that and did the humble hoedown mm, and that's right. yeah. Sam Bush was headlining that mm-hmm. again and he was he was the headliner in Utah so it was really fun to see him in two different settings yeah, yeah. very you know following each other very quickly so yeah for me I'm used to the, the one that I've always gone to is strawberry which is it's wonderful it's huge it's four days of, of camping and there's tons of stuff going on and it's it's the place that I really got comfortable playing in front of other people because of the friends at camp that I had uh-huh. but American River was the first I've gone to like local festivals, but American River was the first small festival with camping where you stayed for a number of days. And mm. I was so impressed with it. It's cool. like, and I kept talking about it for weeks after. Going, this was so cool to tell everybody <laughs> about it. But it was, it was great. Cause, and I met a lot of people without even trying. Uh-huh. I was just kind of hanging out. So I didn't mm. really – what did I tell my friends? 
I wasn't in my usual networking horror mode. I just kept, <laughs> I just kept chatting and meeting people, and it was uh-huh. just, it was fun. It was easy. Yeah, you know, and there was some great music. Yeah, you know? there was. Yeah, really, really good music. Yeah. I mean, I was. I don't know about you, but um, the headliner I had never heard of Gandalf. Oh yeah, um, I, inter- I interviewed. Did Josiah. you? I inter- he was one of my first interviews. Oh yeah. And so when I heard they were coming out, I got a hold. Of him. I said, "Can we talk about the new album?" They said, "Sure." So we hung out afterwards and visited. Yeah, they're and they're. They're really hard to describe, but they're incredible. Very hard to describe, yeah. and yet something very compelling is going on yeah. there. You know? Yeah, they're a good band. And he is such a character. His yeah. stage presence, I think, kind of anchors everything that's going yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. You know? And you got his wife, Tink, in the skirt. How can you bleed a, how can you beat a blonde playing accordion with a skirt? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're good, and they're very good. No kidding. Yeah. That, that, to me, that's always been the fun thing about festivals is you – you see a bunch of bands you've never even heard of. Absolutely. And you walk away just discovering some new artists and you go and you realize they have a whole catalog of records to pick from. And Absolutely. Yeah, that's the fun of and it. I'm, and for me, my bar always gets raised yeah. as far as um, I'm so impressed with what a lot of these people are doing, you know, and I'm walking away thinking, okay, how can, not not to copy them, and but it's more like how can I get some certain dynamic that I watch mm-hmm. them work with really well how can right. i bring that into what i'm doing you know yep and um and i bet it's a bit the same thing happens to you you know like a couple of weeks or a month or two later all of a sudden it's coming out in some new song you mm-hmm. know and you go hey where'd that come from some little oh. bit or some yeah something yeah yeah, yeah which is great well let's, let's let's talk about your last two releases um live and live and groundskeeper then i guess here are a couple of things but yeah. 2002 and 2008 and you recorded the last one partially in your rv yeah Talk a little bit about those, those couple of discs and kind of where they came from. Well, Live and Live is exactly what it says. Mm-hmm. That um, I was really intrigued with live uh, recording, and that was when I was making the transition from band to solo. Okay. So on that particular CD, it's a, a lot of different shows, mm-hmm. cl- everything from clubs to you know um, uh, outdoor festival kind mm-hmm. of things and stuff like that. Um, and it has performances with just me solo mm-hmm. or with me with a percussion player or with me with a percussion player okay. and a fiddle player and they are all live performances and mm. that was really really fun to do yeah um when i got done um then i really wanted to go back in the studio mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. that, it's that age-old swing you know it's sure. like you get in the studio for whatever a couple of years it takes to finish a cd and then you just can't, you know, you never want to see a studio again in your life. Mm-hmm. And you're going, well, how can I do this differently? And, yeah. you know, you run out and you do the live CD. Um, but I wanted to do a studio CD where I had a little more control mm-hmm. over the performances. Yeah. And and that is The Groundskeepers, which is the most recent. came out in March 08. Mm-hmm. And um, The Groundskeepers is uh, pretty much uh, all me, solo Every guitar um, mm. performance is solo performance. That's where I'm really into the finger picking thing. Nice. And I do add some uh, some vocal harmonies just to you know give it a little production thing mm-hmm. going on. But that that's pretty much it. And the other thing that people tend to pick out of the Groundskeeper CD is um, it's very activist. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really set out for that. It just, it just you know happened. yeah, it just happened. You know. And, and uh, I think the reasons are obvious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know at camp you played um, 
the one about Woody's guitar and I think Petroleum Pete. Petroleum Pete. It's a really great song. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it's a look back on ancient history. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah. Well, I had that. I had the idea for that song yeah. for a long, long time. Um, Speaking of fuel. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> And well, the I, guy who I, drives I, an RV on the road, he drives... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I know, there's a, there's a lot of conflicts in Dave's life, but... We you know, my first CD, I got this song called Good God, Man, How Big a Car Do You Need? And when I pulled up in Strawberry with our with our truck and camper the first time, my friends went, what? And I go, <laughs> you know, I, it, it's not my full-time vehicle, and yeah, I'm a hypocrite, you know. You know. <laughs> what do they want you to do, show up with your, your survival gear and you know, guess, one blanket you know, or something? I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that actually goes to one of my pet peeves. Um, you know, uh, if we're really going to solve this problem, we really need to come up with solutions because that work mm-hmm. for people. Because right. people aren't, we're not going to go back to being cave people. One thing I don't hear a lot, and I, you know, I do what I can, um, or what, as much as I actually, you know, I do as much as I do, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear a lot of talk about hybrids and alternative fuels. Uh, I don't really hear a lot of talk about. Maybe we should drive less. I don't really hear that, and I, you know, I, I work at home two days a week, and when I when I go over the hill, I carpool, which oh, good for you. Something, it's something, but no, I th- I, th- I think it's more than something. Yeah. I can, I commend you. That's great. You work at home two days a week, mm-hmm. and when you go over the hill, yeah. you carpool. Yeah. If everyone was thinking that way, that would yeah. go really far towards solving yeah, the, the problem. The kicker is you got to. It's hard to find. I, at least in this area, going over to San Jose. Um, before the jobs go to India, um, is finding somebody who can who can mesh with your schedule and adjusting it accordingly. Right. But um, you know, so anyway. But it's having the attitude. It's you know, it's trying look, looking yeah. for the solution. You yeah. know, um, I, um, I've, I'm taking a lead from you here, and that is that we shouldn't name company names. But um, I heard a company we all know about. Um, the CEO from that mm-hmm. talking about their energy program. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty inspiring because mm. basically it was he was just laying it out in very pragmatic, simple terms mm-hmm. that if you look at the math, this is all very doable, mm-hmm. helping alternative mm-hmm. sources of um, energy. Yeah. And I mean, even his time projections were um, very, you know, not way in the distance, so that it just became unreal. Right. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not out of hope yet. That's kind of what I'm. Yeah. I'm not out of hope yet. Well, I think you know it's interesting because we live when we live in California, um, and we live around Silicon Valley, and we live around all this um, entrepreneurship, and we live around the, all this innovation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just want to go. Let's secede yeah. and just start doing it. Yeah. You know, we don't have to wait for these guys. You right. know. Right. <laughs> But I know that's a little unreasonable too, but maybe I've spent too much time in Jefferson, the state of Jefferson, as I go between Oregon and here, you know, and all those guys want us to see. Oh, well. So I, I, got, I got us off at a tangent. So the Groundskeepers sure. is kind of a solo effort? It's all solo. Um, I'm real proud of it. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it for me, it's, it's really neat the way it's being received by people. It's very timely. And, and again, I'm looking forward to the next CD which will be somewhat similar, but mm-hmm. I, I want to add more production. Nice. More, more, not a lot. I don't want to take it out of the acoustic realm because mm-hmm. I love that. And um, one of the things I say to a lot of my shows, there's a, there's a song on Groundskeepers uh, called Pretty Little Farmer. And it's basically it's about how the, the whole um, uh, environmental consciousness movement, the 
grow locally, buy locally, mm-hmm. um, all, all these things also are coalescing uh, very much around the acoustic renaissance that's happening. Mm-hmm. And, and this, that's not to the exclusion of electric music. Mm-hmm. It's just that somehow the two the two have similar kind of feels going on. Mm-hmm. And I just love that, you know, that, that, you know, that the music is very enmeshed in the culture. I mean, it's a little bit like the 60s, you know. Yeah. The, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so, um, so anyway, that song's on there too. But my, my, anyway, my point was that I want to stay in the acoustic realm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take it back back into the electric realm yet, although I will admit I just snuck my electric guitar into the RV. <laughs> so when there are those moments... Second thing because it was hidden in the cabinet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's good to mix it up too because you, you might not want to have the same sound on every CD. You want to get no, some people I something agree new. With you. In fact, I was just doing I mean, a if session. If you have songs that definitely lend themselves to just that solo kind of acoustic sound, sure, but yeah. but it's, it's nice to mix it up too and give people something different. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, my big thing, actually, I, I, I've thought about saying generally that I'm not really an acoustic guitar player as much as I'm a solo guitar player. Okay. And the acoustic simply being is the most often the best uh-huh. tool for that. Um but what I'm finding is there are some things that I want to experiment with on the electric, but within the solo guitar environment. And that's not, again, to the exclusion of other musicians. I'm just just a freak for, you know, solo uh, fingerpick guitar. Just I just can't get enough of it. And, yeah. You know. We should hear something, then. Oh, okay. <laughs> so there you have it. Dana Hubbard on band versus solo gigs, the club scene, where it went, um, festivals, and the merits of traveling in an RV. And I've been inside. It's actually a kind of a cool little rig. So there you have a little background on Dana Hubbard. Like I said, he had a kind of a, a cool story. I'm glad we captured it here in this interview. A um, couple of dates I want to let you know about. On July 18th, I'll be with Dana along with Greg Kitchell and Stephen Horstadt up at the Acoustic Barn in Newcastle, California. That's um, kind of not too far from the American River Music Festival, but it's it's outside. It's kind of like outside of Sacramento, heading towards Auburn off the freeway. It's a really nice house concert series. I've been to a couple there, and I, I've played. This will be my second time playing at the Acoustic Barn. If you want to find out more about that, it's Saturday, July 18th. Uh, four songwriters in the round, and you can get a hold of Kevin O'Dell at um, K-O-D-E-L-L at S-H-R-A dot org. It's K-O-D-E-L-L at S-H-R-A dot org to make reservations or you can let me know you want to go and I can hook you up with Kevin. It's a really nice little house concert series. And Dana mentioned the American River Music Festival. I'm going to actually be there this year. I'll be um, on September 18th. I'll be hosting their open mic at the American River Resort in Coloma, California. And on Saturday, September 19th, I'll be doing another round with Michael McNevin and Cindy Kalmanson at the American River Resort. So a couple of the evening performances will be um, playing and, and kind of running, so that'll be a lot of fun. That's in Coloma, California. And all that information about that festival is at AmericanRiverMusic.org. And it's a really nice land this year. They have people like Eliza Gilkison and uh, Jackie Green, City Folk, uh, which includes Keith Greninger, who I interviewed a couple of uh, podcasts ago, and Kimball Hurd, who was up here at this, on this interview series about a year ago. So uh, it's going to be a really fun weekend up in Coloma. And again, AmericanRiverMusic.org is where you can find out about that. 
But uh, back on Dana, we're going to hear him play a little bit now. We're going to go back to my kitchen table in episode 65 of Songs and Stories. So uh, click on the next link if you're on michaelgaither.com or wait in iTunes and you'll get this in about a week. And if you're listening to this show back in Baltimore on Grateful Dread Radio, this will be up next Friday night. So thanks for listening. I appreciate your time. Take care.